0: Hello, I'm Steve Wartenberg, your host for this special edition of the James Cancer Free World WCBE radio show. First a little bit about our podcast. We started about a year ago and to date we've done 25 episodes twice a month, we put out a new podcast. You can find it at cancer.osu.edu slash podcast, or you can find it on most podcast services by searching James Cancer-Free World Podcast. On each episode, I talk with our top cancer researchers, physicians, and leaders of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center and James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute about the groundbreaking, life-saving work they do. We've talked about the inherited genetic mutations that cause cancer, about vaccination that prevent cancer, about the importance of clinical trials, how new drugs are developed, and three new, James, statewide initiatives that are changing the way colon cancer, endometrial cancer,
1: and lung cancer are treated. We've seen an amazing amount of progress over the last 100 years, and certainly in the last 20 and 10 years. I believe that our ultimate goal is to create a cancer-free world. And from what I've seen in this period of time, it's possible we may get there.
0: That was Dr. David Cohn, the chief medical officer at the James, and it's this passion and this determination that drive Dave and his colleagues to work tirelessly in their labs and in their clinics to offer their patients more life-extending and life-saving treatment options, and it's working. A recent report from the American Cancer Society found that the death rate from cancer had dropped 27% from 1991. But there's still a lot of work to do. And today, on this special episode of our podcast, we're going to learn how comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one here at Ohio State, are changing the landscape of cancer treatment and care. And about two new and really exciting treatments, targeted or precision cancer treatment and immunotherapy. Dr. Raphael Pollock, the director of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, will tell us about a new Institute of Immuno-Oncology. And in a special segment for this WCBE show, James Physician, Dr. Robert Weslowski, will interview Charles Graeber, the author of a new book. It's called The Breakthrough, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer. Let's get started, and we'll start with Dr. Peter Shields, the deputy director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. In Episode 17 of our podcast, Peter explained the role of Comprehensive Cancer Centers and how they help achieve the vision of creating a cancer-free world.
2: A Comprehensive Cancer Center, which is a very abbreviated CCC, um, is a designation from the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health, federal government, And this was a program that was actually established in the 1970s, uh, around the time of uh, Nixon's war on cancer. And it's part of that legislation. So it's been around a long time. And there's different ways of thinking about it. Uh, It's a grant. So every five years, we have to write thousands of pages. And and we'll come back to the review process. Uh, But it gets reviewed by people at other cancer centers. And we get a score. um, And you get the grant, which brings in real money. It's also like an accreditation. So an interesting fact is about 80 percent of the dollars that go into cancer research at universities are based at the 49 comprehensive cancer centers. Well, so, it's, so it's a chicken and the egg thing. So each of these places are powerhouses that they attract the dollars that the federal government is giving for cancer research.
0: So this is 80% of the federal dollars, not... Correct. Okay, because these other institutions raise money on their own. But the federal dollars, which are the the seed money that gets everything started, that's the comprehensive cancer centers get 80% of that.
2: Right. Well, it's actually a lot more than seed money. It's also definitive studies. And I would bet that if anyone looked, and maybe they have, if you look at foundation dollars... Other types of federal dollars besides NIH, it probably follows the same way. Most of the cancer research are are in these places, and I often caution faculty, junior faculty that we're interviewing, you know, I'll always say, I want you to come here to Ohio State, but if you don't, you're good enough that you should only be in a comprehensive cancer center because more than a grant, more than accreditation, more than money, what it is that you demonstrate to people outside your institution who have no skin in the game that you are making impacts way beyond what you could do at a university if the, if the university didn't have that cancer center grant. And that's really important. So this grant is really stories. They're not evaluating the science per se, but did you have a vision to develop the science that then led to an impact, a new drug that's curing cancer, a policy that's affecting how people eat or smoke, um, uh, so, so policy impacts, maybe new screening implementation, better ways to treat patients, you have to show that you've actually made a contribution, that you just didn't have a researcher who came in, did a bunch of research, wrote a bunch of papers, and then no one ever read the papers. Okay. That doesn't count. And so, so doing that um, is really fulfilling the NCI's dream, which is making cancer research impactful in ways that are measurable. You have to prove the impact. You have to prove you have critical mass in three general areas of cancer research in clinical trials, in basic science, and in population science. And you have to show how all of that works together to be more. So, you know, so as you're taking care of patients with great clinical trials, you're also thinking about their quality of life. Or you're having studies go on in the same type of patients for early detection, or chemo prevention and survivorship, or better imaging of their tumors. So you have these physicians, these scientists, basic scientists, physician scientists, who are working together on the same problems coming from very different perspectives. And that only happens in these types of cancer centers. So, you know, a community hospital could be have some great clinicians, but they're not these sort of super specialists that we have. They're not working with the basic scientists who, you know, they're not getting into a room and saying, hey, I've got this patient with this tumor that's got this really unusual mutation. And a basic scientist steps up and says, hey, I'm studying that mutation. There's an interesting pathway that, you know, it affects maybe you could even try this drug. That's what happens here. That's what happens here at Ohio State, which you don't get at other places. So it's the translational impact. The whole NCI program for comprehensive cancer centers is they don't want basic science for basic science, as important as that is. It's very important because you don't get to the translation if you don't get the the very basic science. But they want to fund the science that's going to impact patients as soon as even a few years. What people don't realize is that the NCI is pretty serious about this. It's not an easy club to get into. You really have to prove to these external reviewers that you're contributing in ways that wouldn't happen. And then the review process is a serious review process. I mentioned that the grant is thousands of pages. We have to talk about the impact of our science. We have to talk about the infrastructure on how we have enabled this science to happen. So part of those stories are we recruited these people because we had an emphasis in immunotherapy. We then built this shared resource that can do immunomonitoring of cancer patients as they respond to therapies in clinical trials. That's led to these three papers that then gave someone an idea at Ohio State for a better way to do the drugs. We then got FDA approval to use the drug, and now the drug is FDA approved. Hmm. You know, And we have examples right. of things like that. Um, you know, uh, John Bird with, with ibrutinib is an example of how based on pioneering work that is now saving you know, countless lives of people with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So you do get a score, which is a grade. Okay. Uh, in today's scores, uh, it's like golf. The lower the score, the better you are. Okay. A perfect score is a 10. But you also get descriptors. So you could be um, good, very good, excellent, outstanding. Are exceptional. Okay. So a very good is like a C. So a very, so good, a very good is, is not is very good. good. Okay. <laughs> As a taxpayer, you don't want your money yeah. going to an university that's only doing very good. Historically, at NCI in the nineties, at OSU, uh, the Cancer Center core grant was about to be lost. Oh. They were not particularly okay. strong. Um. And at that time, that's when they recruited Clara Bloomfield and Mike Algeri and a whole bunch of people from Roswell. And they came in, and they had incredible institutional support, said, let's clean this up. Let's get better. And they went from a very good score to their next review, which was excellent. Then they went to outstanding. Then when I was recruited in 2011, they had just come off a review where they were exceptional, and they got a score of 12.
0: With 10 being the best.
2: Right. 12, okay. And then uh, three years ago, we went back in, and even though we'd gotten a 12 last time, in fact, we were better. And we told the reviewers that we were better. We didn't really expect to get a score of 10, which is perfect, but that's what they gave us. You got a 10. We got a 10. Perfect score. Now, now of course, no one's perfect. We're not perfect. Mm -hmm. But we were perfect in the reviewers' eyes for the goals of the NCI program, which is to do large amount of impactful cancer research. And how, that's really critical.
0: How rare is it to get a 10?
2: Well, so a few centers have 10s. Dana-Farber is one of them. Memorial Sloan Kettering is another. You know, so we're part of, I mean, it sounds negative, but a part of a club that is really among the best cancer centers in the world. The types of areas that we've been really emphasizing historically, was, which is around the... Um, uh, you know, the genetics and the targeted therapies, the prevention areas, um, the uh, um, the growth in clinical trials and novel therapies, and so, uh, y- you know, genetic counseling. And so we've grown all of those. But what's really exploded over the last few years, which we were doing, but not nearly as much as now, is the whole immuno-oncology and immunotherapy. Okay. And we have very big efforts now and recruitments around this. Uh, We're growing very, very fast. That's going to be woven throughout the whole grant on how we are literally saving patients' lives and 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 even the patients who have uh, terminal cancer, how their lives are so much better in terms of quality of life and and survival.
0: The Comprehensive Cancer Center here at Ohio State is one of the largest and one of the best in the country with more than 340 world-class scientists. A huge breakthrough in cancer research came from the completion of the Human Genome Project in 2003. This enabled scientists to better understand, target, and to attack cancer cells. Dave Cohn, the chief medical officer at the James, explained in episode 23 how this led to a new way to fight cancer, targeted
1: cancer therapy. When we began looking at the DNA, which is the building blocks of what makes us human basically, we also looked at the building blocks of cancer itself. And so if you look at the DNA of the cancer, which is what comprises its genetics, you can then begin to understand that there are specific patterns of genetic changes that occur in many different types of cancer. And so while one patient might have a lung cancer and another patient might have breast cancer... Historically, they were treated with very different drugs, but sometimes there's the same genetic changes called mutations that are present in the exact uh, areas in a breast cancer and a lung cancer, and now those two different types of cancer might be treated with the same drug that targets that specific genetic or DNA change, and so, that's called targeted therapies.
0: So how does that work? So you know what the, the mutation that caused the lung cancer, the breast cancer, and then you have a targeted therapy for that. What what actually happens in the body?
1: Well, in the body, it depends upon the mechanism of how that drug works. Sometimes there's things called antibodies. Um, antibodies are things that are uh, basically an artificial immune system that finds that abnormal change in that cancer and targets it, attacks it, and kills it. So that's one mechanism. The other mechanism is that there are small molecules that basically disrupt or uh, inactivate something that leads to acceleration of cancer growth.
0: Okay. And, and so now there are, I don't even know, like, uh, dozens or more different kinds types of targeted drugs.
1: There are more than dozens of targeted and- drugs. I mean, it, the number that are coming onto the market, um, on a weekly monthly basis are quite shocking. So there's a number of drugs that are within a specific, uh, That target a specific mutation, but then there's many, many mutations that are targeted as well. So there are literally hundreds of targeted therapies for cancers.
0: So this is sort of the start of individualized cancer care, the the concept of no routine cancer, that we're going to look at
1: what's specifically causing your cancer and come up with a treatment for that exact problem. That's exactly how you need to think about it. So the no routine cancer mantra that we have at the James is exactly because of the knowledge of the genetic basis of cancer, and the ability to treat patients in a targeted fashion that's specific to their disease. And what typically happens is is that by virtue of treating um, the patient's genetics is that you're able to identify the right patients and treat them with the right medication at the right time. And what this is translated to, as we talked about earlier, is a significant increase in the number of patients that are living long-term with cancer diagnoses. In episode
0: nine of our podcast, Dr. David Carbone, the director of the James Thoracic Center and a lung cancer specialist, he explained how scientists have developed ways to supercharge the body's immune system and to help it find and kill cancer cells. Well, the immune system
3: is an incredibly complex system that's evolved over millions of years to protect us from outside invaders. And typically, you think of viruses and bacteria being recognized by the immune system and cleared uh, by your immune system. But it's also true that the uh, cancer cells, when they develop, uh, have different features that can be recognized by the immune system. And cancers that become clinically a problem, become apparent to us, must have avoided that immune clearance mechanism. And it's exactly those features that we can target with immunotherapy.
0: So when the immune system is working properly, and a cancer cell develops, what happens? How does the immune system sort of attack it? So the immune system has many different
3: mechanisms of recognizing and killing things that are not supposed to be there. Uh, The one system that's probably most important for cancer therapy is is called T cells. Uh, These are Uh, T comes from the word thymus, but they're a type of white blood cell that can specifically recognize things that are not supposed to be there and kill the cell expressing that thing that's not supposed to be there. And in the case of a cancer, uh, what it recognizes is um, changes in proteins
0: that happen in cancer cells that are different from normal cells. So the T cell can sniff out, recognize... These uh, changing proteins,
3: correct, and it's extremely sensitive. There's twenty thousand different proteins in a cell. Each protein is made up of thousands of amino acids, sometimes, and or at least hundreds for a typical protein. And and these T cells can recognize a single amino acid out of those in those proteins that's different from what's supposed to be there.
0: So this is going on, I don't want to say all the time, but it goes on frequently in the body where these uh, invade these cancer cells form and the body and the T cells just wipe them out.
3: We're constantly exposed to cosmic rays, diesel exhaust, radon, all kinds of things. And then, of course, if you're a smoker, cigarette smoke, and the, all of those things damage your DNA and damage to DNA results in altered protein sequences, which are effectively cleared uh, and the cells expressing those altered proteins are effectively killed by your normal immune system. And so it's thought that many uh, cancers arise throughout your lifetime that never get beyond a few cells and the immune system clears them out. Whereas uh, the ones that we can see, like I was saying, must have avoided that response.
0: So do you know? How do they avoid it? What do the cancer cells, how do they mutate or, or create some sort of barrier?
3: So there's many ways that they can do that. Um, the one that we've been able to capitalize is uh, by overexpressing a protein called PDL1. PDL1 uh, stands for pro, pro, uh, programmed death ligand 1. Um, but PDL1 expression on the cancer cell uh, engages another receptor on T cells that turns the T cell off. So, this expression of PDL1 in cancers tells the immune system oh, this is something that's supposed to be here, and it's like a force field around uh, the cancer where when an immune cell comes to kill, ready to kill that tumor it sees this pdl1 and it just turns off so the pdl1 a few just a few years ago was was defined as being a major pathway for immune evasion and companies and laboratories developed antibodies against that pathway which could effectively turn off the force field immunotherapy as as has been found to be most effective today blocks these turns off these force fields that i was discussing and their, PD-1 is probably the major one that's targeted, especially in lung cancer right now. Uh, there are other immunotherapies that are uh, being moved forward clinically. But the PD-1 therapy has made dramatic uh, differences in cancer patients today and is now uh, approved for my um, my area of interest, which is lung cancer. These are antibodies. They're not really drugs. They're human antibodies, just like the ones that are circulating in everyone's bloodstream, but they've been engineered to turn off this force field by binding to PDL1 or another related protein, PD1. And in a fraction of patients, uh, these antibodies, when you give them uh, to patients, Cause dramatic regressions of the cancer, with usually virtually no side effects. So this is almost a miraculous therapy in some patients. And we have patients. I have patients that have taken these drugs for just a few months, had a complete resolution of their cancer, and are now have now been off of therapy for years with no evidence of progression. Uh, when they started with in otherwise incurable metastatic disease. So this has been a transformational new therapy in lung cancer.
0: Overall, are you able to sort of give, I don't know if this is the right term, but success rates or longevity rates compared to before immunotherapy?
3: It's very important to emphasize that not everyone benefits from this therapy. If you take unselected lung cancer patients, only about 20% of them will have major responses from immunotherapy, from immunotherapy. Maybe a little more. If you select your patients for those that have tumors that have high levels of PD-L1, then the response rates could be in the forty percent range. Oh, okay. So it's and some people have no response at all to these agents. So the the whole paradigm for really intelligent science based uh, therapy of cancers today is. Identifying the Achilles' heels of cancers. And one person's cancer is totally different from every other cancer. And each cancer, uh, we look for these Achilles' heels. In one person's cancer, it could be a driver oncogene mutation, an EGFR, or ALK, or BRAF. In another person's cancer, it could be overexpression of the PDL1. And we've learned to use science and to analyze the tumors and try to match the best treatment to, the, to each patient. If you have a high tumor mutation burden and a high pd one you had about a 75% chance of remaining progression-free at a year.
0: With, with the immunoth- with immunotherapy?
3: immunotherapy alone.
0: And that... Uh- The thing you just said, the uh, tumor mutation burden, meaning it metastasizes and goes throughout the body, no, or the 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 tumor
3: mutation burden, I think, is a technical term, but it's one that even patients will hear about. I think in the future because it's becoming an important marker. This this counts the number of differences that a cancer cell has compared to a normal cell. Some cancers may only have ten or twelve protein differences between it and a, a normal cell. In lung cancer or melanomas or, or some other cancers, the you can have hundreds or even thousands of different differences between cancer and normal cells. And each of those represents a potential target for the immune system. So it makes sense that if a cancer has more targets, you're more likely to, to hit
0: one. Okay. So PDL one is sort of the first protein marker that you found in in numerous lung cancer patients and that you can then attack through um, immunotherapy. immunotherapy. Right. Are could there be more? Are you working of course. finding more? The immune system is incredibly
3: complicated and my hope is that this these PD1 pathway targeting drugs are just the first wave of effective immunotherapies targeting other regulatory mechanisms that cancers have. And so this patient may need this pathway targeted, but another patient may need another pathway targeted. And again, really understanding that process through science uh, will help us treat our patients better.
0: But are, are there specific and markers that seem to show promise that this could be a target that you and others are here and around the country are looking at?
3: There's, there's many other pathways that are being investigated here and okay. elsewhere, and each of those has potential biomarkers, but we're still just learning how to best assess that. I've been in this business about 30 years now, close to it. And when I started, I would say the majority of lung cancer patients got no cancer therapy at all. They just got symptomatic therapy with painkillers and. And, uh, and they would die. And they Is would it? die very yeah. quickly. And the average time from diagnosis to death was between four and six months. <clears throat> now we have things to offer to many patients. And again, I want to emphasize these great new treatments don't work in everybody. Right. But in subsets of patients where they work, we have people who are now five, six, seven, eight years with no evidence of cancer who had metastatic disease and probably would have lived six months in the past who now have normal qualities of life uh, off of drug years
0: later. So precision medicine and immunotherapy are two of the big reasons why this has happened. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you see happening with immunotherapy and precision medicine 5, 10, 15 years in the future? How much better and how much better prognosis will you get? Well, the hope is that we'll have
3: incremental progress and then then quantum leaps like we've had with the discovery of the first targeted agent was a major improvement that happened rapidly. And then we've been tweaking on that progress for years, developing second, third-generation drugs that work better, get penetrate the brain better. And then we've developed immunotherapy, which was another quantum leap in the uh, treatment of, of lung cancer. And and now we're in the process of discovering other similar mechanisms better choosing patients for particular therapies. I wish we could help more people, but once the successes that we are having are very uh, gratifying and they're helping people today.
0: We're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned, and when we return, Robert Weslowski, a James physician and medical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer, will interview Charles Graber. He's the author of a new book, The Breakthrough, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer.
1: A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer. Yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine. To prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066.
0: We're back, and you're listening to this special edition of the James Cancer-Free World on WCBE. Next, Dr. Robert Waslowski, a James physician, medical oncologist, and researcher who's involved in precision cancer and immunotherapy research and treatment, will talk with Charlie Graber, the author of the new book, The Breakthrough, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer.
4: What prompted you to to write on this topic you 've written so many different um, uh, books and stories and what 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 is specific about immunotherapy that fascinated you enough to write a book about it
5: right that, that's a it's, a it's a wonderful question uh, you know my, i don 't have any one speciality really uh, except that i 'm I'm not afraid of science topics. I believe that they're actually, uh, you know, that science is, is an exploration of the world around us an understanding of it, an attempt to understand it um, and to realize how little we, we do understand. That's something I think everyone uh, can enjoy, enjoy and appreciate, but uh, it sometimes requires some training and some understanding and, and, and some language to be able to uh, you know to, in order to see the view, this very fascinating view of the world, you need to do some some climbing and so I try to do some of that climbing for people to make the ramps a little easier to almost trick them along the path um, and certainly that was the case with this uh, with this story of, of immunotherapy. I was actually doing a very different uh, story I was just coming back from repeat trips I was taking to New Zealand where I was uh, not to get too far into it but uh, under house arrest with a very famous internet criminal um, doing a story from there and revisiting him. And the person I was seated next to on the way back happened to be a biology PhD um, who who knew who I was. He'd read my stories. He was familiar with my work and, and, and uh, a, I guess, a fan. Um, and we were seated next to each other for a very long time. And so eventually I, I asked him, Okay, so what's the most interesting thing in biology? What's the most interesting thing you know uh, that you're seeing in literature that that I'm I'm probably unaware of? And he he talked about um, CTLA4. He talked about uh, the idea that, or the the, the the new discoveries that at that point it was it was relatively new. Um, I mean, this was four and a half years ago, so so things things had, had progressed a bit, but uh, the, that we had figured out that the immune system can, in fact, recognize cancer, uh, and it can fight and kill cancer, and that cancer was stopping the immune system. It had evolved, uh, you, could, you might say, to trick the immune system, and we'd also learned how to block the tricks. And uh, And this, uh, this sounded, I mean, it's groundbreaking, right? It's, it's yeah. the, the story of a generation, uh, and I'd heard nothing of it. <laughs> and, yeah. and I thought, how can that possibly be? And then I, I went and researched further, and and tried to, sp- you know, to speak to people about it, and decided, okay, I I want to investigate further. Perhaps I can get some some funding to be able to afford the time to try to write a, a book. And I couldn't find at first a publisher that wanted it because they said, well, this can't possibly be true because mm-hmm. we would have heard of it. Um, and this made all the more important uh, and all the more clear. How important this story was—not just to tell and to and to you know to mark this turning point in history and the history of medicine uh, and our history with this terrible disease, but but also to uh, to spread this news because uh, it, it was clear to me that um, even oncologists that I was speaking to at the time said, "Well, we all know that doesn't work. Immunotherapy doesn't work. We we tried that," and and that was. At that point, it, it, was, it that was right until it was wrong. So so that's really what got me in, in, involved mm-hmm. in this. I thought it would take one year. It took four years, uh, four and a half. <laughs>
4: yeah, I, I, I can hear you because when I started and when I was in training at Cleveland Clinic, I actually um, started investigating these immune cells called myeloid-derived suppressor cells, which are yeah. the break on the immune system, and these cells are actually exploited by cancers, uh, they release factors to stimulate their growth, and those cells in in return will dampen the immune response, and people were exactly, well, not taking that very seriously, but it's interesting to see how how things have changed in the last few years, where this is... uh, um, you know, heralded as as the breakthrough, uh, as you as 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 the title of your book uh, indicates, as the, as the breakthrough in medicine.
5: Yes, yeah. it, 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 that was another aspect of this story that I found so compelling was that uh, c- cancer immunotherapists. Uh, it, you know, some of them I've gotten to know um, many of them, or they all see, and they all seem to many of them know know each other because there weren't that many of them left. People that were willing to identify themselves as uh, not just you know, not just researching aspects of of, of immunology, but uh, but being willing to actually stick their neck out and say we've seen we've seen yeah. glimmers of data that indicate uh, that this is possible, and we're still trying to figure out why. But they were really uh, the, you know as you know very well, it was underfunded and it was really looked down upon. It was almost pitied by the larger uh, scientific community, the larger medical community. It was just considered to be You know, uh, the 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 land of dreamers, uh, who perhaps were, were, but you know, it was it was almost sad. And now there isn't there there isn't a a research group, uh, especially in the field of cancer, that isn't, if they're not in cancer in uh, an immunotherapeutic route to finding uh, a cure, expanding the group of people that are cured. um, They're making plans to be. It's very. It became clear that suddenly that uh, mm-hmm. that this ridiculous idea was in fact true, and not only true but also uh, explained so much of, of what you must have seen uh, in your work uh, these confounding results uh, that, that would uh, that didn't seem to make make sense why why doesn't it work um, right. and you know and and then suddenly there's this uh, aha moment uh, that explains. Some of why it doesn 't work, as you said, this down regulation and and now we can um, and now we know this is this is the area to look in, and it 's so exciting
4: yes and I think it cultiv- it culminates in uh, last year with Dr. James Allison and Dr. Tasuku Honjo getting a Nobel Prize for uh, discovering uh CTLA4 which is called cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen 4 and PD1 p- uh, programmed death ligand 1 um uh, which are important signaling molecules that that um are overactivated in cancer and which then inhibit the immune system and we have developed so many inhibitors now to these molecules that work and and um also um, stimulate the the immune system, or this remove the brakes on the immune system. That works really work really really well. So I agree. It's so seeing a Nobel Prize given to those individuals is was really really exciting, and I think that that sort of was the aha moment and gotcha moment to all the skeptics who who didn't believe in immunotherapy. Um,
5: right. It was. I mean, the, I mean, and, and what a turn! And it was so much fun. Uh, uh, you know, those. Uh, those cancer meotherapists know how to party. Uh, yeah. I was I was with them when when they finally got when they all got together. I was in you know Jim Allison's hotel suite. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know after he'd been he'd he'd played harmonica with his band the Checkpoints and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and there was you know a lot of a lot of. Uh, um, you know a lot of people with a lot of letters under after their their name uh partying like uh like college kids they were just so over- overjoyed uh at uh at at this moment of of, of breakthrough and and, yeah. and for for good reason it it really is um it's you know it it's it, what a what a turn and and what a hopeful time to be uh to be in, in research to be a, a researcher uh, and also obviously a a much more hopeful mm-hmm. time for for people with cancer
4: i I agree, um now, do you recall any specific experiences uh that uh really affected you in profound way while writing the book?
5: Oh, my goodness, uh, so many um, you know there there were the sort of experiences where i didn 't realize how little I knew, and so I spent years I, I tried to write uh almost right away and realized I have to read a lot more before mm-hmm. I write, and then I realized I have to talk to people more and the and I remember. The, uh, you know, Jim. I was sitting with Jim Allison um, and having a few drinks at uh, in, in Boston at a conference, and in the middle of it, he introduced me to this 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 other this other guy, um, and I I you know and I didn't quite understand why uh, he, I needed to meet his friend Bob, um, and, and Jim at the time said. I found, but Bob proved it. You know, Jim's from Texas, so he says, mm-hmm. it, sort of like that. And I wrote all this down, and I was recording it. I really didn't know what that meant. And it was about a year later when I went, "Oh my God, that's Bob Schreiber!" And Bob proved he, 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 he basically proved why CTLA four or blocking CTLA four, um, uh, you know, how that how that works on a evolutionary, how it probably developed evolutionarily, how it works within the um, the tumor microenvironment, and and the, the in this within the Cancer immunity cycle um, I, but i i was i was i, I, I didn 't know enough to realize what he said at the time, so moments like that were very profound uh mm-hmm. intellectually um, but then there are other moments um you know during over the course of this book um, a a good friend uh, received a, a cancer diagnosis uh, he's been fighting it he'll i think he'll be on you um, he, he comes to i 'm in New York right now he comes to New York to Continue to receive uh, treatment, and he's been fighting back. Um, another friend received a, another diagnosis, and I thought for sure um, he was going to benefit from from this breakthrough. Uh, and I and uh, and he sadly uh, died uh, very mm-hmm. very quickly. Um, and my own mother uh, received a secondary diagnosis. and She's doing okay, but um, but. You know, this is a it's a it's a fascinating intellectual story. Um, but even Jim Allison, in one of my interviews, he he was brought to brought to tears remembering uh, his own personal history uh, with with this disease. And that's what really struck me over and over again. Is sometimes there's I have this great you get this great enthusiasm for this story and the idea of uh, you know the the intellectual pursuit, um, this fascinating breakthrough intellectually. Um, and then there are people. And yeah. the people that, and, th- and that's what's full of the, I mean, you, you, you certainly, you know, this is a, a clinician, this is, this is certainly, um, and it's what this, my book, The Breakthrough, is I tried to make it full of, full of people. The people carry the ideas, and you can never get too far away from the, the, the life and death fact of that. Um, in in this story or really uh, I think in medicine at all wouldn't wouldn't you say
4: yes yes there is there is science and then there is also human experience and if you can marry both that that creates so much more powerful impact than just one (laughs) one of the Mm. two Um, I agree and you know I I treat patients on clinical trials and I have some of my own clinical trials uh, looking at different uh, immunotherapy combinations And uh, what we are striving for right now uh, is that, you know, we want to increase that percent of patients who have truly benefited from immunotherapy. And when we mean benefited, it's a different benefit than the benefit people get from chemotherapy or other forms of anti-cancer therapy where, you know, you use the treatment and it works, but when you stop the treatment, the treatment stops working with immunotherapy. Um, you can have a response and that response can last a very long time even after you, um, you stop taking the drug or the, the treatment. And that's because you are not targeting cancer, you are targeting the immune system. And the immune system remembers and it can continue mounting an immune re- response even after the stimulation or the treatment is, is, uh, is no longer present. Uh, so that's that's what fascinates me most about immunotherapy. But what we really would want to do is to inc- is to increase the number of patients that derive that durable benefit. Because at this time, only a small percentage of patients ec- have this great experience, where our uh, treatment works really, really le- well and for a long time.
5: That, r- yeah. r- right. You know, it, that's one of the one of the goals of of my book uh, was to. For it, it was really written for for everybody uh, and and there are different ways of reading it. Uh, you can read it. Uh, researchers may enjoy a deeper read where they go to the end notes uh, mm-hmm. more often. I also assume there are going to be readers that really um, are only reading about cancer because they have it and really don 't want to have to read too much more than that and mm-hmm. uh, I felt it was really important to to highlight what you what you just said um, and to make it as clear as possible to to those people that. That this w- this is different. This isn't just more drugs and more hand waving about a, a breakthrough that may be around the corner or some any one specific miracle. It's it's not that it's working for everybody yet. It's that it's it's that we've discovered that an entire field uh, of, of of therapy is possible, and that and that is so different because it focuses on the immune system and it has a different type of response um, and a different a different type of hope because everything else that's uh, every you know the the, the what referred to in the book is cut poison and burn mm-hmm. surgery and chemotherapy and radio radiotherapy um w- while they, they can be highly effective um they they don 't move uh, they, they don't they don't mutate they don 't mm-hmm. adapt um they 're fundamentally uh, different uh than the disease itself which does mutate it does adapt it 's tricky cancer is and mm-hmm. Um, and it and it and it's actively working against all all of the therapies. Um, right. So really, the, in order to beat it, we had to uh, play it play play the same game. We needed to be on the uh, yep. you know we needed to bring a gun to a gunfight sort of thing. And now we finally finally have. And understanding that, I hoped would also encourage people uh, to ask about about this uh, to seek. Places like, like like your center, where uh, where where the cutting edge work is happening, where you're where you're up on not only up on what's happened, but creating what's happened next, what's happening next, um, and to encourage people to enter those clinical trials, because uh, as as you know, less than I think five yeah. percent of all patients ever even end up on clinical trials, and it's really where the um, some of the most important stuff is right now, the the, the hopeful front yeah. edge.
4: I couldn't agree more. So, what do you think is new? What, what's next on the on on the horizon for immune therapies?
5: This was the very difficult thing about writing the breakthrough. Um, mm-hmm. Over the course of, of four years, everything changed. Um, what the <laughs> things that didn't change were was the basic fact uh, that that we that, that we now understand that cancer can and is targeted by the immune system, and that we can help it to uh, to to be better done. Um, but so many there's so many questions. You know, with, with, was this target going to work, or was, was this going to be the, the the future, or or that compound? But is there another, um, you know, another type of breakthrough around the around the corner? And it's very difficult, I find, and very, uh, to to really be able to see the sometimes the forest for all these trees, um, yeah. which is again one of the reasons uh, points of the book it, in the. On the first page of the book the prologue it's only it 's less than ten lines long. It contains no science words at all, mm. uh, no real ones um, it 's just a sort of essentially a uh, a metaphor um, it 's something I think everyone can understand and it and that 's the forest It simply explains that we we know this is possible we 've unleashed this the, this this five hundred million year old defense system finally. Um, against this, this disease.
4: Well, we, we are running out of time and I, I, I apologize that I have to um, stop here, but uh, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, 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 the, for this conversation. It's really uh, so exciting that, I, you know, people feel the same way as I do. So I, I thank you for writing the book and thank you for, for giving this interview.
5: Well, Dr. Waszewalski, thank you so much for, for speaking with me and for spreading the word about, about this book and your, and, and the, your important field. You, the work you've done uh, in, 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 uh, in a time when this was not recognized as the field uh, is, is now paying off and it's paying off for, for patients. So thank you for sticking with it.
4: You're welcome. and Thank you as well.
0: As you just heard, immunotherapy is a huge step forward. In episode four of our podcast, Dr. William Farr, the interim CEO of The James and a breast cancer expert, filled us in on how research, precision medicine, and immunotherapy have combined to change breast cancer treatment.
6: It's really rewarding and very exciting because breast cancer has probably come further than any other solid tumor. And what I mean by that, when I started my training back in the mid 70s, almost all breast cancer patients had what we call a radical modified or radical mastectomy. And that's basically where the entire breast was removed, all of the chest wall muscle, and all the lymph nodes.
0: So no matter how large or what type of breast cancer they had, that was it. That's that what you did. was the type of
6: treatment. Yeah. So since that time, we've gone through modified radical mastectomy to lumpectomy and radiation. And now there's a clinical trial uh, that in some types of cancer uh, that they receive chemotherapy. And then we repeat their tests that showed the cancer. And if that cancer now is no longer seen, we can just do a biopsy and potentially not do any surgery for pretty advanced breast cancer. Wow. So I've seen it going from radical surgery to potentially this is just an early clinical trial, but down the road we may not even be doing surgery for some types of breast cancer.
0: What's that like to I mean you're the history of modern cancer treatment breast cancer treatment you've and have participated in all those steps along the way.
6: Well, it, it 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 is. It's very exciting, but but also very rewarding to 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 see and be able to treat patients. Uh, uh, you know, from from the time where back when we started, if some lady had a lump in her breast, she would go to the operating room, not knowing if it's cancer or not, and may come out without her breast. Wow. Uh, to so, the oh, point. Th-
0: so before the surgery, you would tell your patient, if we see that this is cancer, we're doing this radical mastectomy. And the patient goes to sleep, not knowing what's correct. going to happen. Well, correct until today, where where potentially you said, we yeah. may
6: not even be doing surgery uh, in a, in in a very short period of time. That's that's uh, uh, probably the uh, the most solid the, the solid tumors that's changed the most in treatment.
0: So the big question is: What's next in the prevention and treatment of cancer? We're about to hear from Dr. David Cohn, the chief medical officer of the James, on how the future includes new ways to combine targeted therapies and immunotherapy with each other, as well as with improved surgical, radiation, and chemotherapy treatments.
1: The general next steps are almost all the same, which is what can we do to maximize the chance of cure and to minimize the chance of harming the patient in the process, so in surgery, for example, things that are being done through smaller incisions with faster recoveries and less side effects is a really important component. Thinking about new technologies like robotic surgery that have actually accomplished this already. When you think about radiation techniques, we talked a little bit about you know using computer simulation or imaging to really guide where the radiation is applied. That's a process by which we can use, for example, proton therapy, uh, a new technology that's going to be present at the James within the next five years, to be able to really deliver the most effective doses to minimize side effects in brain tumors, for example, is a very important next area of research and clinical application. When it comes to chemotherapy, whether it is traditional chemotherapy, targeted therapies, or immunotherapies, some of the big steps we're taking is looking at the combination of these things together, because we know that very often cancer cells are able to outsmart the chemotherapy. And so if you give one specific type of treatment, any of those three we talked about, very often the cancers find some way to evade being killed by that modality. So if then you kind of combine different strategies together, traditional chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, or immunotherapy plus radiation therapy, the hope is those cancer cells can't outsmart the ability to be treated, which would lead to patients being more commonly cured.
0: And it sounds like the bottom line of all this is
1: Research is what fuels this, this battle. Absolutely. And when you look at the progress that's been made over the last 50, 100, of years, this is all because of research. And so uh, in the last 10 years, the progress that's been made has been truly remarkable. And this would not have been possible without patients that are being enrolled in clinical trials and without translational and basic science research that's being done to really being able to better understand what are the right treatments. Uh, and having the right treatments done with the fewest side effects as well. You know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years. And so when I thought back in the time that I started my career, I would have never believed that we would be to the point where we are now in 2019. And so recognizing the progress that's been made in that near 20-year career, thinking about where we're going to go in the future is truly inspirational. And I think that that's what keeps me going, and that's what keeps most of us going, is the ultimate goal of curing more patients and having them live longer lives and better quality of lives.
0: Immunotherapy has incredible potential, and the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center is already at the forefront of this emerging new tool against cancer. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Raphael Pollock, the director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, who will fill us in on a big step forward in
7: this direction. We have been uh, working very closely with the uh, Pelotonia uh, board of directors, uh, as well as the uh, board of the uh, James Foundation, uh, and collectively, these, these two major, major philanthropic uh, groups um, have made a commitment to raise $200 million over the next five years to support the Institute of Immuno-Oncology. That's a major commitment, uh, larger than the commitments that are being made at many comparable institutions, frankly, uh, in order to be able to recruit uh, the faculty that we need to sustain them uh, and potentially to help uh, with the uh, space uh, as well as funding uh, and position requirements that that they bring to the table. We anticipate that over the next five years, we're probably going to need to recruit approximately 35 new faculty over and above the natural growth of faculty that we would otherwise experience in order to fully staff the, immuno, uh, the Institute of Immuno Oncology.
0: As Dr. Pollock mentioned, Pelotonia is a major funder of the new Immuno Oncology Center. That's pretty amazing. But Pelotonia is totally amazing. Thousands and thousands of riders Virtual riders, volunteers, and donors have raised $187 million in just 10 years. And everyone who's been on this radio program rides in Pelotonia, every one of the world-class physicians and scientists you've been listening to. It's become a special weekend every August that connects the James team with the community and the community with the James team and is an uplifting, joyous, and emotional experience for Everyone involved. Here are the favorite Pelotonia memories of Dr. Pollock first
7: and then Dr. Carbone. Without a doubt, my favorite memory uh, has been riding with the patients, uh, and uh, that had particular meaning for me because. Uh, I had the I have had the opportunity to ride with several of my own patients uh, that people you have operated on and treated and and followed up on and gotten to know. Yes. Uh, And that that's just uh, it's it's a a priceless experience.
0: What happens? You, you're you riding and someone will either pass you or you'll pass them and you recognize each other? Or
7: One was a patient who I saw just just in that way, that sort of serendipitous. Uh, but, but several of the patients were people that um, we had connected with before and had made a plan to ride together.
0: Oh, so you met up at the start.
7: Yeah, we met up at the start uh, and uh, uh, rode 30, 40 miles uh, together, which was just super
0: So how inspiring and cool is that to ride with your patients? Uh,
7: Tremendously, uh, tremendously so. Uh, Both uh, very validating of the work that we do uh, in helping to care for these people uh, and and simply seeing my patients who are out there and and enjoying an activity that doesn't uh, tie in a negative way to their own tumor situation. seeing people getting, getting on with life. I, I tell my patients uh, that uh, they should uh, not let the, their tumor take any more of their life than it already has, and seeing them out riding and enjoying and interacting with others uh, really reinforces that concept. One of my patients was,
3: um, had set up some canvases Uh, along the side of the road, big white canvases that were about six feet across, and they had the word cancer in 10-inch high red letters across them. And uh, the instructions to riders going by were to take paint balloons that they would hand out and throw them at this sign with the word cancer to wipe out cancer.
0: That's a great idea.
3: And at the end of the ride, um, these signs were very effectively obliterated. The word cancer was very effectively obliterated. And uh, the, this patient of mine uh, gave me one of these canvases. And I uh, hung it in our thoracic oncology center with a little description of its significance. And this same patient, I remember biking through her town, and, um, and she sent. I saw her uh, on the side of the road and waved at her, and, and she sent me a little video of me biking by and waving at her. And, and, and this kind of community engagement uh, with this particular patient and many others has uh, made Pelotonia the special thing that it really
0: is. I wanted you to hear these Pelotonia memories from Dr. Pollock and Dr. Carbone for an important reason. They are both cancer survivors. About 1.7 million people every year hear those life-changing words, you have cancer. Dr. Pollock has delivered this message to too many of his patients over the years and he suddenly
7: found himself on the receiving end. Having cancer uh, adds a little bit of spice to life, uh, to say the least. Uh, It puts a little bit more urgency into how you spend your time. You recognize that there are even fewer guarantees about the future, and yet the advice that I give my own patients about not letting it take over your life uh, isn't a a bit of advice that I've tried to follow myself. so that I am able to do uh, what I want to do, uh, what I feel capable of doing, in order to help other people.
0: How has it impacted how you deal with patients? Do you, any is it any different now? Uh,
7: it is it is different. Uh, I share the information uh, with my patients that I'm also a cancer survivor uh, or a cancer patient, uh, as well as a cancer provider. Uh, when my patients talk to me about cancer fatigue, I can relate to it very directly. I have also experienced that, uh, and, and I think that in many ways it has brought me much closer uh, to my patients.
0: Thanks for listening to our special edition of the James Cancer-Free World podcast on WCBE. As you've learned, the team at the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center and James Cancer Hospital and Solove Research Institute are making incredible advances in precision cancer medicine, in immuno-oncology, and in several other promising areas of cancer research. But there's a lot more work to be done, a lot more research to fund, clinical trials to open, and miles to ride in Pelotonia as we continue on the path toward a cancer-free world. Pretty much everyone has been or will be impacted by cancer, so it's a goal we really need to reach and a goal that you can be part of. You can find our James Cancer-Free World podcast at cancer.com. Dot .osu.edu slash podcast, or search for us in the podcast library on your smartphone. Type in the words, James Cancer-Free World. This show was produced by Steve Wartenberg, Melissa Hall, Jennifer Harget, Paul Kotheimer, and Doug Dangler at the Ohio State University College of Arts and Sciences Academic Technology Studio, and was brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur D. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solove Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.